We have been moving our way through the armor of God. We have looked at almost all of it at this point. The girding of the loins with truth. We've looked at the breastplate of righteousness. The footwear of preparation, the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Last time we looked at the shield of faith. And now we look at the helmet of salvation. Helmets are very important items, are they not? Because the head contains a very important thing, that being your brain. And, uh, you know, we've been going to see the, the Lugnuts play. One of the gifts uh, that I got this year was some tickets to a number of, of Lugnuts games. And I have been just excited to go and cheer for our team and watch how they always go win, lose, win, lose, win, lose, no matter what. Um, and luckily, we've only seen them win, so maybe we're the good luck charm. But one of the things I've noticed is that batting helmets have gotten a little more elaborate uh, since the last time I'd been to a, a baseball game. Now, this is not an official uh, batting helmet that you would see someone wear in, in Lugnut Stadium. Uh, this one came uh, from the uh, concession stand. It had food in it. Uh, so you, you probably wouldn't want to uh, wear this when you had a 100-mile-per-hour fastball coming at you. But they've now got a bigger and bigger and bigger kind of ear and cheek and face protector to the point where I wonder if someone would get a curveball coming from the outside if they would even see it coming. Uh, but the, the helmets that they actually wear are so well designed and always continually getting more and more well designed uh, day by day, year by year. And the same thing is true of football helmets, which are probably even more important. All the head injuries we've been hearing about and reading about in the world of professional football, they now actually outfit these players who are worth millions to the team with $1,000 to $1,500 helmets each, and still dozens of people every year seem to be getting concussions. So an inadequate helmet is a bad thing for those who are uh, in the faith. An inadequate helmet is a bad thing. Just ask Goliath if you would like to confirm that. That guy needed a better helmet. Am I right? Took a stone right in the forehead, went down. He didn't go backwards like you always see in the pictures. It sunk in and then he fell forward, which is even kind of a cooler image in my mind. And I've heard people suggest, you know, probably he just left the helmet with his shield bearer because he so just detested the idea that this, this little boy was coming to fight him. He said, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks, etc., etc." But that's not the, the case. He did have a helmet. We know that because 1 Samuel 17 says he had a helmet of bronze on his head. And he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. And it's often portrayed like he, he came at this flippantly and looked at, at David and said, A slingshot? Really? Like, who are you, Dennis the Menace? Uh, you're going to hurt me with a slingshot? That would not be the case either, because the sling was a legitimate weapon of war, a common weapon of war. That there were in ancient armies entire cohorts of slingers. The Benjamites were left-handed by and large, and they were skilled slingers. And a sling, it was a deadly, deadly weapon. It could hurl a stone at great, great speeds because they would whip it around and whip it around. And you know you can get incredible speed when you begin to do a thing like this. Do you know why a bull whip makes such a loud noise? The tip of the whip actually breaks the sound barrier. That's true. It's the first human invention to break the sound barrier. A little tiny sonic boom. 
And so when they're, they're swinging this and they let fly, and they would have in it uh, either ammunition that was manufactured for such a purpose, a little lead ball or metal ball bronze or, or, or something like that, or just a stone like David, to get hit with that sort of thing would be like being shot with a musket, essentially. If it got your head, you were done. And so, yes, he had his helmet fastened on, the problem is the Aegean-style type of helmet, and we've found many, I mean, I haven't been involved, but we collectively have found uh, many of these, did not have a visor that went down, the kind that was worn at this point in the late Bronze Age uh, that the Philistines would have been wearing. And, and that meant that the soldiers had to keep their heads sort of tipped forward in battle for maximum protection. But if you're looming way above your enemy... He's looking right up at your dome, right? And if you rear back, maybe to throw a javelin or just to laugh at this kid because you're trash-talking him and his God and his nation, you open yourself right up. And as soon as he did that, David let go, and that was it for Goliath. Dr. Virgin, uh, not too long after, suggests we start seeing visors appear on these helmets. He's a professor of Old Testament studies and Hebrew studies. I think maybe he knows what he's talking about. And wouldn't it be funny if that was because the tale of Goliath spread throughout the land and people said, I have a crazy idea. What if the helmet went down lower? Well, that's important. Always improving, just like the batting helmet. What if, though, you have a helmet that cannot be improved? That would be worn perfect protection. Would you ever take it off? Would you ever consider not putting it on when going into battle? You know, there was a time when only commanders and kings and champions like Goliath wore helmets. They weren't common. By the time of King Uzziah, though, as we read about how he outfitted his army, this is just a few hundred years after David and Goliath, we see that it's standard issue. Everyone gets a helmet along with the rest of his Stuff And that's good, it's smart, because a single blow to the head, whether from a sword or a, a battle axe or a war club, can kill a man. Even a super tough, battle-hardened soldier. Your head is only, I've been told I'm hard-headed, but one blow to the head would take me out of commission. And the Romans certainly knew that. We've talked about this uh, as we've gone through the armor of God, that what Paul seems to be picturing as he describes these things uh, in the terms he uses, seems to be kind of centered around the Roman armor of his day, what, what a Roman legionary would wear, the panoply, and he would be probably thinking of this because it was never out of his sight. There was always a Roman guard as he's writing imprisoned, and he's writing down things that, that are on his mind, and so he thinks, well, that's actually a good, uh, a good picture of what I want to describe each and every piece of the armor of God by which we stand and stand firm against the enemy and stand on the evil day. The Roman helmet was called the Imperial Gallic, and it was made of leather and iron or bronze, and it was fitted to protect the skull and the back of the neck from either weapons that might come down, blows, or debris raining down, all of which was part of warfare in the Roman world. Uh, the cheek plates that were hinged would come along the side of the face and be tied tightly down. You often see in movies, these guys running around and they're flapping all over the place. No, no, no. They would have tied it tightly down for not only maximum protection, but also to keep the thing in place. Just like, you know, football players, they snap that thing down. Even Captain America in the movies, he snaps it into place so the helmet won't come off. It was heavy, 
was big, and to make the weight more bearable, they would line it either with sponge or with felt of some kind. And at the top was a crest and a plume of dyed horse hair that not only made it more intimidating, made it more exciting in military parades, but also helped them distinguish between different ranks and officers, not unlike the emblems they would put on their shields that we talked about a few weeks ago. So, yes, I keep reminding you that he's picturing contemporary Roman armor from the day that he's writing, but the notion of this armor, the idea of an armor of God, a spiritual armor, first appeared about 750 years earlier in the book of Isaiah. And we keep looking back there as well. And it is God's armor. As Yahweh is pictured as a warrior, frequently in the Old Testament, going forth to bring about justice, to defeat his enemies, to deliver his people, he is decked out in this armor. Isaiah 59, 17, we read, He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. So we're wearing God's armor when we put on the armor of God. In fact, that's maybe even a play on words. Armor of God, the, the genitive there, the of part, can mean either belonging to or associated with. And in this case, it's both. God says, here, wear my armor. Not unlike how Saul said to King David, here, wear my armor. But that didn't fit and it weighed him down. This is perfect fit for each of us, even though it's God's size. What a mystery that is. The helmet of salvation that God wears in that verse, Isaiah 59, 17, is his own saving work, his plan to go out and rescue his people. Now, of course, God is spirit, but in the anthropomorphic language of the text, he has a head, and the simplest reading of this is that the head signifies his thoughts, his intent, and his intent is salvation for his people. He's here to save them. So his helmet of salvation is the salvation he will carry out. Our helmet is the salvation that is given us. The salvation we receive. He is mighty to save. We are mighty when saved. We must first be saved before we can have any shot of standing against the enemy. Or of even standing against the simplest or smallest of temptations. Now we need to notice too... As the, the uh, picture of the armor is filled out and the armor is kind of figuratively doled out, that we have another shift in verb. So for the first three, remember, he said, Stand therefore, having put on the armor of God, having buckled the belt of truth, having shod your feet, uh, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And then last time, he said, Take up the shield of faith. Now it becomes a direct command. You take that thing up. Take up the shield of faith. If you let it fall, that's going to be bad news for you in the, in the day of battle. Take up the shield of faith. But he switches here for the last two pieces. It's no longer take or take up. It's receive. Receive the helmet of salvation. And I know our translation here, the ESV, says take, and I don't know why. First of all, because it misses the distinction between the verse before and this one from take to receive. But more than that, because of more than 50 uses of this word, decamai, in the New Testament, 98% of them are translated receive or sometimes accept. See the difference between take and receive or accept? Most of the time it means <clears throat> receiving a person. 
They received Christ or received him not, etc. Sometimes it means receiving a payment or a letter or receiving or accepting the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only time in the New Testament that it's translated take, other than this, in our, our translation, is in Luke chapter 2, when Zechariah takes into his arms his newborn son and blesses him. But even in that case, I mean, it's a newborn baby. I guarantee it wasn't like, ha-ha! It was more like mom had him, and he said, oh, let me, and she and received the baby, right? And this is how we take, or rather receive, the helmet of salvation. It's an important distinction, I believe, because we can't take up our own salvation or do anything to forge it or even attain it. Now, all of this was God's armor being given to us, but there's active uh, language for, say, taking up the shield of faith. It's not as active here. Receive the helmet of salvation. We can't earn it. Like early soldiers might rise through the ranks and they become a captain and now you warrant the helmet. Or you become a champion and now you get a helmet. We can't grasp it with our own hands. We can only receive it from the nail-scarred hands of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Back in chapter 2, which maybe you want to put a finger in because we are going to keep going back there this morning. He told us that we receive this salvation by grace through faith. By grace means we can't do anything to earn it, so we're not taking it up. We're not going, ooh, I almost got it here. No, we receive it, plain and simple. That's why perhaps this isn't the best picture of the helmet of salvation. Not only because I look like an idiot right now, but also because I paid for this. And I did the work. I ate all the nachos that were inside of it. And then we washed it out. But if, if I've done the work or I've paid the price, then it's not the helmet of salvation. And you know what? It's not going to do a bit of good just like wearing this out onto uh, the, the batting box wouldn't do me a bit of good. In fact, it says right inside, <laughs> this helmet is for food only and is not a protective device. It should never be worn for protection of the head. Oh, Okay. I think that might be a little legal disclaimer that, that's there like, hey, your coffee is hot. But it, it, point taken. This is something that is not going to help me because it's, it's plastic. It's the kind of thing that I could, I could attain, I could put together. And when we look at salvation as something that we're building and, and, and attaining and putting together of our own merit, at the end of the day, it might look like someone's walking around with a helmet of salvation on, but a closer look you'll find that it is not to be used as protection for the head. Now, salvation is a broad term. In the Old Testament, it usually means uh, saved from a particular threat, an invading army, a plague, a drought, something like that. And then after a while, the word salvation just begins to mean kind of God's tendency to save his people and his, his power and might to rescue them from whatever may come their way. In the New Testament, it comes to mean spiritual deliverance from sin and its consequences. But even then, it's broad. We could mean several things. And I'm going to suggest that Paul means all the things, but not equally. We, we've spoken of this a number of times before, but it's a good reminder. The Bible doesn't just talk about being saved in the past tense. If you are a Christian, I was saved, okay, that's it. It speaks of salvation in three tenses, past present, and future. Or to think in Hebraic terms, something that's perfected, something that's in progress, and something that is imperfect, not yet complete. 
For the, the past tense, which is often how we speak of it, we, should, we mean justification. We mean the, the, in the past, our being declared righteous on the basis of Christ's death. For the believer, salvation is, in one sense, a completed fact. Yes. It signifies the forgiveness we receive by faith. Faith in the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, his sinless death for your sin and mine, his triumphant resurrection for your justification and mine. It, it, it means our adoption as sons and daughters and our deliverance from spiritual bondage and darkness. All that which is, in a sense, done. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. Yes. And there's a sense in which it's, it's complete. It's a done deal. When we ask, are you saved, this is usually what we're talking about. I don't know how frequently that's asked anymore, but growing up in uh, American Baptist Church in, in Bay City, where I, I grew up, if you ask someone, are you saved, not only were you talking about the past tense, you were fishing for maybe a really good story, a uh, testimony that would talk about their hard, dark past, and then have a kind of crisis point or hitting bottom, and then a seeing of the light, and then a kind of clarity, spiritual, and, and all of this, and then a, a 180 turn, which is great. I mean, many people have such stories. The Apostle Paul had maybe the best one, and God is glorified by such stories, but many more Christians don't have that. Timothy, for example, we're told he was taught from infancy about the Word of God, and he's taught the gospel by his grandmother Eunice, and he kind of grows up into the faith. Certainly there was a point at which his sins were washed away, but he doesn't have this moment of, of crisis, perhaps, to look at. Perhaps he more slowly eases into his faith in Jesus Christ. Well, this helmet imagery reminds us that far more important than a juicy story is a sure knowledge that I belong in body and soul, in life and in death, not to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And ultimately, we all do have an incredible salvation story. It goes like this. The Son of God, God himself, came in the flesh and dwelt amongst us, lived a perfect life while a conspiracy by the powerful people was woven together all around him. He died a sinner's death for your sins and mine. And on the third day, he rose again. That's a great testimony. In fact, there are many people who lament that they don't know the day and hour of their salvation because it would make certain Christian conversations much easier. Well, they do know it. Good Friday, 3 p.m. That is the day and hour of all of our salvation. Looking back to chapter 2 again, we remember that we once lived under the enemy's power and in his grip. Look at this, uh, verses 1 and 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. But then in verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him. So, yes, this is a past tense thing that, that just gives us hope and, and gives us confidence and it quickens us to serve our Savior. And when someone says, are you saved? I think you can say without any qualification, yeah, I'm saved if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ. Because yes, you have an incredible salvation story, an amazing cosmic drama on your behalf. If he saved us from all that, 
being dead in trespasses and sins, walking in darkness, following the prince of this world. That's the devil. You used to be a devil worshiper, right? Remember when Mike Warnke in the 80s made up all those stories? I used to be a devil worshiper and I had nine inch long fingernails and I drank blood and everything. And then pictures came out and they were like, you were just a nerd, man. You know what? All of us were in some sense a follower of Satan because Jesus even said to the religious leaders, you're of your father, the devil. In order to no longer belong to the prince of this world, we must be adopted by the father God. And, and we must be re-affiliated with the one who recreated us from which we had turned away at the fall. So yeah, we have an amazing story. And that, in this present tense, helps us, helps hold us up, remembering that. Charles Hodge said, that which adorns and protects the Christian, which enables him to hold up his head with confidence and joy, is the fact that he is saved. No one can take that from you. There's all these famous speeches in, in movies, right, where, where William Wallace and Braveheart, they can take away everything, they can take away your land, they can take away your titles, they can take, but they can't take away your freedom! And it's like, uh, actually, they can totally take away your freedom by putting you in jail. One thing no one can take away is your salvation. The, the devil cannot grab you out of God's hand. You ever play that game with your brothers and sisters growing up where you try to, whoever you slap? That's not a game the devil ever wins. Jesus says not one of them was snatched from my hand except the son of perdition, and that was God's will. So we are saying no one can take our salvation, and that should give us strength in the battle today. It is, in one sense, a done deal. So that brings us into the present tense. In the present, I am being saved. Have you ever heard anyone say that, rather than, are you saved? Are you being saved? That'd be a legitimate question, too, I suppose. Are you being saved? Well, that means, yes, I'm justified, I'm spoken for, I'm secure in God's hand, and, and the devil can't grab me out, no scheme of man, none of that. But I am also being sanctified. In my walk, every day, God is changing my heart. I become a new creation, not instantly all at once, but one day at a time so that God can show me my great need for him. And so that this change becomes more and more who I am, not just legally in God's sight, but even in the sight of the people who live around me, practically. There's this process in which my thoughts, words, deeds, and desires, your thoughts, words, deeds, and desires are changed and, and they align more and more with God's own will and Christ's own mind and heart. Not always in this straight upward trajectory either. There's often pitches and valleys and it's an, a, a messy battle against our own pride and sloth and lusts and the schemes of the enemy. But we can see it as we look back. That's where I was. This is where I am. God is at work in me. That's the present tense. And so, not to be too cute, but this helmet enables us to keep our heads in battle. Satan's attacks lose all their luster when we know that our sins no longer define us. That we're not that anymore. That, that they've been cast away from me as far as the east is from the west, down into the depths of the sea where they sink, 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 and never resurface. 
When we remember, you are not your own, per 1 Corinthians 6, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. That means the past that you know affects the present in which you live. An assurance of salvation is vital to the Christian's daily walk. Know that your helmet is on. I would not want to belong to a Christian tradition that said knowing you're saved is a sin. I'm not suggesting you can't be saved and think that you, you can't know it. But man, I'd rather know it. Wouldn't you? To know that you are secure. And of course, there's a difference between assurance of salvation and security, eternal security. Security is simply a fact. You're, you're, if once, once God shut the door of the ark, the people inside and the animals inside were secure. I bet they didn't always have perfect assurance, though. I'm sure there were times as the boat went and the rain came and the waters weren't receding that they felt like, oh, this is, this is a mess. We're in trouble. But they were secure. But having the assurance emboldens us. It strengthens us. It encourages us. It comforts us. And that's the best motivator. Fear can only go so far and so deep in motivating people. You can tell them, you're going to go to hell if you don't do this, 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 and stop doing this, 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 and this. And when, when people get into those games, the lists get longer and longer all the time. And it will make people who buy into it put their shoulder to it for a while, but they'll get tired. Because that is not God's plan. And it only goes so deep, it doesn't get to the actual heart. Legalism only can change the behavior. It can't change who we are and make us a new creation. To again quote the Scottish Baptist Alexander McLaren, who's kind of coming up on Spurgeon as my great hero in the Baptist faith, the consciousness of salvation will tend to damp down the magazine of combustibles that we all carry within us. And the sparks that fall will be as innocuous as those that light on wet gunpowder. Knowing that we are saved almost defuses, in many situations, the indwelling sin that might drag us away. Just the knowledge that we are indeed spoken for in Christ. To remember that, to wear it on our heads as a helmet. And just as the Roman Gallic protected the head, the helmet of salvation protects our minds, our understandings from being darkened by the enemy or by our own feeble flesh. Protects us from buying into false doctrine or falling for Satan's schemes, which means falling into temptation or despair. Knowing that we are now spoken for in Christ keeps our minds from being poisoned by the enemy. Having that helmet there to, to guard our thoughts. You know, there's no room in a full cup for poison. And our cup runneth over with memories and remembrances of all the times God has been faithful, chief of which is when he sent his son Jesus to die on a cross for our sins. Why do you think it is that when you read the Psalms, David never shuts up about God's salvation, God saving him, God delivering him, God rescuing him. Every time in the Old Testament anyone talks about God, they seem to talk about, well, God who rescued us from Egypt, the God who moves his hand and saves our lives, because that is who he is, and that means that is who we are, the ones whom he loves enough to save. We keep this in our hearts, we keep it in our thoughts, and it keeps us from falling to temptation or despair. Then there's future salvation. This is the one we don't talk about as much 
which is strange to me because it's a great hope. <clears throat> this includes the glory of our own resurrections on the last day and are being purged in an instant of anything that remains in us, of fleshly desires or, or sinful thoughts or ambition or whatever there might remain that is not in keeping with who God made us to be. Now, these three tenses of salvation, all being part of this, raises a question, of course, because there's a command here, receive the helmet of salvation, and it can only be in one tense. That's how language works. At least that's how Greek works. And the tense that it's in is called the aorist, which means it's a one-time command. You receive it. It's not go on receiving it. It's not receive it every day. It's receive it. And that's how salvation works, right? Once it's received, it's something you have. Well, then how does this fit into the picture of putting on and outfitting ourselves and making sure we're wearing the armor of God? Certainly, the rest of Paul's writings make it very clear. Salvation is not something that can go off and on and off and on as if it were a helmet that a soldier was taking off and putting on depending on the day. Once it's on, it's on. If salvation itself is what we are talking about, and that seems to be what Paul says, haven't these guys done it already? I mean, he's writing to Christians. Haven't they already received salvation by putting their faith in Jesus Christ? I think we find the answer, or at least a great hint to it, in 1 Thessalonians 5.8. If you don't already have a little footnote for that, write that one down in the margin. 1 Thessalonians 5 8, where Paul uses the same imagery of armor, but not as developed. He says, let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. I think that points us in the direction of future salvation, drawing us forward in battle. Now, many people would say, hold on, don't equivocate those two passages. Obviously, they're different. In Ephesians 6, what is the breastplate? Righteousness. In 1 Thessalonians 5, what is it? Faith and love. Well, what is righteousness but faith working through love, according to Galatians 5? I do believe he's using this same grid here, that this is a teaching he must have done in person a number of times, and he works it into his letters, and that the helmet of salvation is the helmet of the hope of salvation, the hope that comes from salvation and the hope that our salvation will one day be full and final in the future. The certain hope rooted, not a wish, but a hope rooted in the reality of what God has done for us in the past and is doing in the present. This is an important tension of the Christian life, that salvation is something we both possess right now and hope for. Something we hope for in the future. Yes, in, in the sense that salvation is present, we would look to Jesus' words. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. What? That's it. Has eternal life. You've got it. Or St. John, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. You've got it. The apostle wants you to know it. This is why I wrote 1 John, that you would know that you have eternal life. In another sense, though, it is a matter of hope. As we read in Romans 8, For in this hope we were saved, so that's past tense, now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We're waiting for something as well, patiently. Waiting and trusting and hoping that God will complete the work. 
David wrote as much in Psalm 138. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Or maybe more famously, St. Paul wrote the same thing, essentially, in Philippians 1. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And far from being at odds with each other, these two aspects are very much in harmony and strengthen one another. Because without a hope of victory, a soldier loses heart. Even if they've won many battles in the past, without a hope for victory, ultimate victory, in the future, if they look around and they say, all is lost, it's hopeless. Well, they might go down fighting, but they certainly won't prevail. We, on the other hand, have a guarantee of victory. The certain hope, the anchor of hope that we have in Jesus Christ. God is for us. Who can be against us? That's the role of the helmet of salvation in the armor of God. I don't need to put on salvation itself again and again, even though I remember a lot of youth group events growing up where the same four kids went forward every time there was an altar call because they'd sinned this past week. No, no, no. Confess your sin. You're still saved. You're still saved. You're still safe in his strong hand. But I may need to put on the hope of salvation again and again, or at least refasten it, retighten it, and make sure it's on there firm. It's been said that Oliver Cromwell's troops never lost because, being Calvinists, they knew their destiny was secure. God led them to that place where they were fighting, and he would bless them in the good fight and give them victory. Now, obviously, that could be a very dangerous worldview. Everything I do, God wants me to do, therefore I can't lose. And, of course, unchecked confidence in one's own inevitable victory is no guarantee of success in any given endeavor. Just ask Goliath, who was quite sure he was going to win. But in this one area, in our spiritual battles against the world and the flesh and the devil described here in Ephesians 6, this should be true. We know we will win. The victory is ours. We might get worn down, suffer setbacks, disappointments, disillusionment, but we know that God has already written the end of the story. It's not in question. In fact, we can even speak of the future salvation in the past tense. We see that happening even in Ephesians chapter 2. Keep going back to that well, don't I? He wrote, even when we were dead in our trespasses, Christ made us, or God made us together alive with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He's describing a present reality spiritually based on a future reality ontologically, that we will be taken up and seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. The, the scriptures often speak about things God has decreed as if they have passed when they haven't happened yet. It's called the prophetic perfect we see it happening again and again in the scriptures. If God says it will happen, you know, I might say to you, hey, consider it done. And then you're like, yeah, you said that last time, Pastor, and then you totally forgot to do the thing. And at the deacon's meeting, we said, Pastor, did you do the thing we were supposed to consider done? And you went, but when God says consider it done, we can think of it as already complete. If I have the hope of salvation, when I fall, I'll get back up, knowing my sins are covered knowing for a fact that I need only confess to God, I'll be washed clean and purified of all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 8 and 9. It also means I don't have to fall. 
in any given situation, I can stand firm even on the evil day. So wearing the helmet of salvation means knowing both the pardon of God's grace and where I stand in relation to God and the power of God's grace. How in my life it changes and strengthens me. So I can't disconnect the past salvation from the present, from the future. That's like taking part of the helmet off. It doesn't work. People try to do this. Yeah, oh, I was saved because I said a prayer. I was washed clean. So who cares how I live now? Or, hey, God will take care of everything in the end. I trust that in the end he'll look at me and go, ah, good enough. And therefore I'll make it by the skin of my teeth into heaven. So again, who cares how I live now? Who cares about my thoughts, my words, my deeds, my desires now? As if magically and invisibly, he who began a good work in me will see it through because there's clearly no work being done here now. It's like when you drive down, I don't know, say, let's just make up a street, Pennsylvania Avenue, and there are eternally road work ahead. Can't go in this lane, lots and lots of cones. No work being done. I don't have very much hope that whoever began a good work on that street will see it through to completion. But if we look now and say, I see that God, who rescued me by sending his son to die on a cross and rise again, will continue working in me and will on the last day, having worked through me and in me, see me in his presence and make me perfectly clean. Altogether, the helmet of salvation gives us the hope we need to face the slings and arrows of the enemy. In Hebrews 6, we read about that sure anchor. Hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. When we begin to neglect the present sanctification, we will almost without exception find that our hope for ultimate salvation suffers. And when that happens, it feeds back. And we begin to think, well, what is this all about? Maybe we're not going to win. Maybe I'm just a failure, spiritually speaking. And the enemy can get a foothold there. But we can fan the flame and feed the fire by remembering that God has accomplished in the past our salvation and giving ourselves to God's saving work in the present and know that in the future he will remain faithful. Why would he change? He's God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, this might strike you as, all right, pastor, sounds all well and good, but you don't know my life. I can tell you this won't keep us from feeling the effects of the enemy's assaults. Remembering that you're saved, dwelling on your salvation, remembering what God did for you and what he will do for us. It will help, but it will not keep us, keep us entirely away from the enemy's attacks. There's never a promise of that. Even St. Paul was not impervious to Satan and his schemes and his attacks. Look at 2 Corinthians 4. He says, we are afflicted in every way. We are perplexed. We are persecuted. We are struck down. All of those things sound like somebody who is not doing great, right? Does he have the helmet on or not? Is he wearing the armor of God? But the hope of salvation kept him from actually receiving or accepting any of Satan's lies and falling before any of Satan's attacks. Let me read that passage in its fullness. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, 
but not destroyed. And a few verses later, he says, So we do not lose heart, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. See, this is the hope of salvation. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. One more time, back in chapter 2. We saw our natural state. You were separated from Christ, he writes, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. What a sad state that was. And someone in that state shouldn't dare step into the fray against the God of this world, thinking that he might stand. It'd be foolish, but that's not our state anymore. Romans 8, 37, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That is the effect of wearing the helmet of salvation. We see our past, our present, and our future clearly and firmly in God's hands. Our past is washed clean. Our present is now bleeding, perhaps, but bleeding in both directions in hope from the past and the future, where our eternal glory and fellowship with the God of heaven and earth await. In light of such overwhelming power and grace and love, how could we lose heart? How could we give even an inch to the enemy? Our helmet is impervious to the enemy's attacks. It will not break. Hold the helmet of salvation firmly on your head. Keep it tightly tied below your chin. Fill your mind with thoughts of God's saving acts on your behalf. When you find yourself struggling, don't think to yourself, Oh boy, I'm weak. I'm going to fall. And certainly don't think to yourself, Oh boy, I'm strong. I'm going to stand. Remind yourself that you serve a God who has already come and secure your salvation, who is at work in you now, and will see that work through to completion. Even when we stumble, even when we fall, our God is faithful, and will see his work through to the end. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are faithful, even when we are faithless. We thank you for the helmet of the hope of salvation, the helmet of salvation itself, first worn by you as you went out to save your people, and now we can put on our heads to protect ourselves, our minds, our thoughts. Lord, we pray that you would keep us holy. As the breastplate of righteousness protects our hearts, may the helmet of salvation protect our minds and help us to dwell not on things that are transient or vain or wicked, but on things that are eternal and good, particularly on you and what a great Savior you are. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.